Thank you, Bill, for praying for us as well as just fellow gospel preaching churches in our area. And thank you, Tasha, for that wonderful testimony. And we want to just encourage you to consider coming to Bridge or even inviting a friend. And it is a wonderful course. Well, as we continue our origin series, please turn in your Bible to Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, starting from verse 18. Genesis chapter 2, starting from verse 18. I'll be giving part one of a two-part message on marriage. And because marriage and relationships are so important, next week we'll hear from Pastor Rob Flood from Covenant Fellowship on specific areas of application, including conflict and communication. Pastor Rob has spent decades preaching, teaching, and counseling on these topics, so you don't want to miss what the Lord is going to say through him. And for those who are single, uh, please don't tune us out over these next two weeks. Be faithful where you are. Be ready for whoever or whatever God might bring into your life. And being prepared means knowing what marriage is and what to look for. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, a heart to understand, eyes to see your truth, the wonderful truth given by your holy, authoritative, and eternal word. I pray, God, that you would fill us with your spirit, Show us, Lord, how to believe and to receive and obey what you've given us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in 2015, the Supreme Court made a landmark decision in Obergefell versus Hodges. In this country, the court established the right of homosexuals to marry. 36 states had already updated their marriage laws, but this would establish same-sex marriage in all 50 states. The different responses were night and day. James Obergefell fought for years for the right to marry his husband. Obergefell said, Today's ruling affirms what millions across the country already know to be true in our hearts, that our love is equal. President Barack Obama at the time praised the decision as a victory for America. But others saw things differently. How can five individuals redefine a basic and fundamental human institution? Others raise the alarm that freedom of speech and freedom of religion for millions of Americans holding to a traditional view of marriage would now be threatened. Well, which is it? Was it a victory for America? 
or the redefinition of a sacred institution? Was it a triumph of good or a triumph of evil? As we've said here in our origin series, the book of Genesis is a watershed. You land on one side of the watershed, water flows in one direction. But on the other side, the water flows in a completely opposite direction. Where you land on Genesis matters. One side flows toward God, toward truth, toward life. But the other flows away from God, away from truth, and away from life. So it's not up to us to answer the question on whether Obergefell was a good or evil decision. As we heard from Pastor Rick last week, God is a speaking God, which means that God's word gets the last word. God's word gets the final word. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. So we need to look to the scriptures and see what God has to say about marriage. So let's look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Well, if you've been with us the last couple months, we've preached through the first 50 verses of Genesis, and for the first time, God says it is not good. To this point, God has proclaimed the goodness of his creation seven times. God made light, it was good. God made the seas, it was good. Then five more times, it was good, it was good. But sometime in the middle of the sixth day, God said, it is not good. It is not good. But as we think about the creational pattern, maybe that's not too surprising. Something is missing in Genesis chapter 2. Man is alone. The sky is filled with stars, the heavens with the birds, the seas with fish, the land with plants. But man is missing a helper, a companion, a friend. You remember mankind was given a mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers, a mandate to worship God, a mandate to work, a mandate to know the word. But in Eden, work and worship, according to the word, can't be done alone. Can't be done alone. God made us to love him and love our neighbor. So Adam needed a neighbor. As Derek Kidner writes, man will not live until he loves. Man will not live until he loves. And like Adam, we are created for community. It's not good for man to be alone. As Ecclesiastes says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And if we consider who the Creator God is, we can see the centrality of community. The triune God Himself exists in community. While Genesis certainly doesn't reveal the full doctrine of the Trinity, we need the New Testament for that, but we do see how God speaks the creation into existence, the Word accomplishes creation, and the Spirit hovers over the creation. So God speaks, the Word accomplishes, and the Spirit hovers. One God in three persons who are co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent, infinite, eternal, and unchanging. 
The one God in three persons exists in perfect unity and perfect community. And because Adam is created in the image of God, in the image of the Godhead, we should expect community. So God says he will make Adam a helper suitable for him. Hebrew scholars point out that this word for helper, ezer, generally refers to divine aid, particularly in the Psalms. For instance, in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills, for where does my help, ezer, come? My help, ezer, comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And when Moses says in Exodus 18, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh, he uses the word Ezer. The God of my father was my Ezer. So the man is missing something, missing community, and needs a helper. But this word helper entails his inadequacy, not her inferiority. It's about his inadequacy, not her inferiority. But it's not just any helper, one who is fit for him. Fit for him. The word fit could also be translated suitable. The word fit or suitable has two aspects, equal and opposite. Equal and opposite. You see, if God intended just equal or someone just the same as Adam, he would have said like, a helper like him, a helper like Adam. But God doesn't use like. He uses fit, a helper fit or suitable for him, a helper who is complementary, both equal and opposite. Now, it seems paradoxical, but so let's see who this helper might be. Let's continue in verses 19 and 20. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Notice that we don't see any making of this helper. No making, just waiting. God brings the animals to Adam so he could name them. There's work for Adam. And yes, that naming would have included even dinosaurs, now extinct. The science of man claims that dinosaurs lived millions of years ago and died off before man evolved from apes. But since Adam named the land animals, he must have named the creatures we call dinosaurs. And you remember, creation is separation, right? Light from darkness, sky from sea. So Adam names three separate categories of animals, livestock, birds, and beasts. And as he does this, Adam is imaging God. Like God, Adam names creation, which shows his dominion, his authority over creation. And for the singles who are among us who desire to be married, learn from Adam. Adam is focused on his calling, the task God has given him to do. He isn't primarily focused on solving his singleness. Focus on what the Lord has called you to do and where he has put you. As I've shared this before, this is a lesson God had to teach me. As a young man in my 20s, I really wanted to be married, but the Lord closed door after door. I was even in a long-distance relationship for a couple years that eventually had to end. As I prayed and wrestled, 
with God, wondering why he wasn't answering, I realized he was teaching me something more important. Would I trust him to meet my needs? Would I trust his plan for my life? As the Holy Spirit worked in my heart, I came to a place of peace and surrender through the work of God in my heart. I came to a place where I could be at peace and rest. I told God that I would choose to be content, that I could be content if he put me on a lifelong path of singleness, even if everyone else around me got married. My single friends, are you wholeheartedly pursuing God's call on your life, whether as a student, an educator, a businessman, or something else? Are you trusting the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in power and wisdom? Are you trusting the one who knows best? So as Adam works, pursues his calling, fulfills his calling, that void, that emptiness does appear. It does become more obvious. Something is missing, becomes more and more obvious. A horse and a mare pass by Adam, and they're named. A Tyrannosaurus rex and a Tyrannosaurus doe pass by and are named. On and on, these different animals pass by. Adam names them. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So let's look at verses 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So God puts Adam into a deep sleep so he can perform some serious surgery. The Hebrew word translated rib could also mean side. So a part of Adam, a rib or a part of his side, was taken out of Adam to create Eve. And earlier, we saw that Adam or Adam was made from the Adamah, from the ground. The earthling was made from the earth. Victor Hamilton writes, just as the male was taken from the earth, so the woman is taken from the man. Both of these special creatures owe their existence to something that existed before them. They didn't make themselves. They owe their existence to something that existed before them. They were made by another. And because the woman was created from the man, from the man, we see their essential equality. Both men and women are created in the image of God. Both men and women are equal in dignity, in value, in worth. Both men and women sit at the top of creation, the apex of creation. Both are needed to be fruitful and multiply. Commentator Matthew Henry beautifully and poetically writes about the creation of the woman. Not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. All Christians affirm the equality of men and women. And yet, within that equality, we see distinction. The woman is not the same as the man. They're not interchangeable. But unfortunately, not all Christians affirm this truth. Yet the Bible teaches that men and women are distinct and have different roles. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 and 9 writes this. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, 
but woman for man. The woman was made from the man and for man, for man to be his helper, not the other way around. So there's a hierarchy implied. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 11:3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband. The head of a wife is her husband. Our church is complementarian, which means men and women complement each other, equal but different, and fit together like salt and pepper, like hand and glove. The man is created to be the head of the wife, not in a domineering or abusive way, but as a servant leader. And the woman is created to be the helper, willingly supporting and submitting to her husband's leadership and headship. You see, God is the one who chose to create man and woman as equal, yet with different roles. This is God's doing. This is God's design. God made them, and God made them for marriage. They didn't make themselves. And it's God who brought the woman to the man in the first marriage ceremony. In defining marriage, we affirm that it is a one man and one woman relationship. It is a one man and one woman relationship. You see, God could have made Adam another man, same-sex marriage. God could have made Adam two women, polygamy. Giving Adam two or more wives would have actually filled the earth a lot faster. But that's not what God did. As creator, God defines their existence, their reality, their relationship. And the calling to bear children also shows us why marriage has to be between opposite sexes. A man and a man could never produce children naturally. Male sperm plus more male sperm can never produce a child. And a woman and a woman could never produce children naturally. You can't be fruitful and multiply in a same-sex relationship. In redefining marriage to include same-sex couples, the Supreme Court rejected the Creator's design. Rejected the Creator's truth, and yet, as Christians, we're called to love our neighbor. We're still called, of course, to love our lesbian, homosexual, and transgender neighbor as ourselves, treating them with respect as fellow image bearers. But love means we can't just go along to get along. We can't, in good conscience, celebrate what God defines as sin. A doctor doesn't love a sick person by telling them that they're okay. They can just do whatever they want, and it'll be all right. In fact, in Leviticus 20:13, God makes it explicit: if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. And the New Testament affirms heterosexual marriage. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. First Corinthians six nine and ten. So true love means speaking truth in love, telling our neighbor that all are in need of the gospel, whether gay or straight. But it's not just a one man one woman relationship; it's a one flesh bond. Let's look at verses twenty three through twenty five. Then the man said, "This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. Pay close attention to that verse, verse 24. We're going to come back to that over and over again. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When Adam wakes up and sees Eve, sees the wife and helper created just for him, he bursts into poetry, the first poetry in Scripture. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. At last, after the naming, the waiting, the longing for a helper, the sleep, God provides what is lacking for the man. God provides according to his way and according to his time. We don't say bone and flesh, but we do say flesh and blood. And this new bond, this flesh and blood bond, now recognized by society, is different from all other bonds. You have a unique relationship with your family that you don't have with your neighbor down the street. So marriage has to be public, has to be known, has to be defined. And now that, now that at this point, we can fill out our definition for marriage. Marriage is not just a one-man, one-woman relationship. It's a lifelong, one-flesh union that goes public. Not just a one-man, one-woman relationship, a lifelong, one-flesh union that goes public. And now that we have a definition of marriage given to us by the Word of God, I want us to take away this main point for today. Because God created marriage for our delight and help, protect and pursue your one flesh union. Because God created marriage for our delight and help, protect and pursue your one flesh union. For the rest of this time, I want to unpack what this one flesh union means. Number one, one flesh means lifelong. It means lifelong. The unbreakable nature of the bond is reaffirmed by Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What God joins in this one flesh union in marriage, let not man separate. The marriage bond is created by God to be permanent and unbreakable. Number two, one flesh means all of life. If you are married, your spouse should be the closest earthly relationship you have. Guys, you'll have your buddies, of course, and ladies, you'll have your girlfriends as well, but none of those relationships should match the oneness that you have with your spouse. Your spouse should know you the best, love you the best, honor you the best, encourage you the best, and this is what we need most. As Pastor Tim Keller writes, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything. It liberates us, humbles us, and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. But you don't get this automatically. Again, if you're married, you have to protect and pursue your marriage. Marriage takes work. If God has called you to be married, he's called you to work at your marriage. And in this one flesh bond for all, 
for, for all of life, in all of life, we realize that all other relationships are changed. This marriage bond radically changes previous family bonds. A man is called to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Your life no longer orients around your parents, but around your spouse. That Hebrew word translated leave is also translated forsake in other passages. So there's a sense where you forsake previous bonds for the sake of making marriage primary. Now, of course, that doesn't mean you stop honoring your father and mother, but your primary loyalties aren't there anymore. And for those of you who are single, you must, you must, you must be so careful who becomes your beloved and best friend. A Christian must never settle for a non-Christian spouse because you will worship differently. You will love differently. You will ultimately live differently. What fellowship does light have with darkness? Can two walk together unless they are in agreement? No. If you're following Christ, marrying a non-Christian will derail you from following Christ. And I've seen it happen over and over again. Those who choose a relationship over Christ eventually fall away from Christ. And number three, one flesh also means physical intimacy. One flesh also means physical intimacy. The one flesh bond in all of life is reflected in sex, in physical intimacy. But that intimacy not just reflects, but enhances and strengthens the oneness. It's something so deep, so special, so unique that it's reserved only for a husband to enjoy with his wife and vice versa. And that's why God commands married couples to keep the marriage bed pure. And marriage is the only context for the physical intimacy that produces children. Anytime you join together in that way, you become one flesh. And the Bible says that must be with your spouse, not your girlfriend, not your fiance, not your partner, not your significant other. Men, you are to be one flesh with your wife and only your wife. Do not defile yourself with other women, either in person or virtually through pornography. But within marriage, enjoy physical intimacy. Find delight in your spouse. We're not embarrassed to say that sex is a good gift from a good God. The Bible celebrates physical intimacy as something wonderful, as something glorious, as something special. It's made and given by God to married couples to enjoy. It's like superglue holding two things together. Superglue makes things stick. God created physical intimacy to cement your oneness, your love, your bond. Adam and Eve have nothing to hide from each other and no one to hide themselves from. They have no shame for they have no guilt and are secure in themselves and in one another. Commentator John Walton. But the world has a very different perspective on physical intimacy. The world says, hook up and be intimate with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want. That marriage, that's just too restrictive. The world's understanding is like eating ice cream underwater. Never tried it, but it doesn't seem like a good idea. Ice cream is great, but it was never made to be eaten underwater. 
Physical intimacy was never made to be spread out to any person at any time, anywhere. In rejecting the wisdom of the Creator, the world devalues and defaces God's good gift. The Bible says, don't unite with someone physically unless you are also willing to unite with the person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way. Husbands, as head of your home, you're the head of the romance department. The health of your marriage is your responsibility. To quote Pastor C.J. Mahaney, men, before you touch her body, touch her mind and her heart. Before you touch her body, touch her mind and her heart. So men, so husbands, what special things do you do for your wife so that she knows she's number one? How do you use your words? Do you tell your spouse, I love you? How do you use your time to show her she's number one? How do you use your money? Do these things say to your wife that she's number one? Or is something else number one in your life? And husbands, don't be lazy. You are called to create a place where both of you are loved and known as the man and wife were naked and not ashamed. That's on you. That's a huge and joyful and solemn responsibility and calling that God has given to every husband. Marriage is a lifelong one flesh union between one man and one woman which has gone public. Lifelong one flesh union between one man and one woman, which has gone public. Before same sex marriage ever came along, our culture had already redefined marriage. With no fault divorce, the marriage can be ended for pretty much any reason. With easy divorce, marriage is no longer a permanent, lifelong commitment. <clears throat> Theologian Carl Truman insightfully sums up the world's definition this way. Marriage is therefore not to be understood as a lifelong monogamous relationship for the purposes of procreation, mutual companionship, and exclusive sexual union. Rather, it is for the mutual pleasure and satisfaction of the consenting parties. And that is it. Marriage has devolved in our world, in our culture, in the words of Tim Keller, from a public institution for the common good to a private arrangement for the satisfaction of the individuals. Marriage used to be about us, now it's about me. And these are two radically different definitions of marriage, completely opposite, completely irreconcilable. On one hand, you have a covenantal, unbreakable bond, it's what scripture holds out for us. And on the other, a relationship built on the shifting sands of mutual consent. Well, if the other spouse isn't meeting my needs, my wants, my desires, I'm out. And we as Christians, before we get too proud and look down on the rest of the world, we're not immune from this me-first kind of thinking. Apart from God, we're no different. Just this past week, Teresa asked me to do something important for her. But I didn't think it was that important. If it needed to be done, now was not the time. It was late and I wanted to go to bed just wasn't convenient for me. How many of you have been there or done that? Don't need to raise your hand. I did do what she wanted, but I complained the whole time, unfortunately. 
Later, I asked God to forgive me and ask her to forgive me as well for my selfishness. But what happened showed me how much my flesh, how much me still dominates. Because God created marriage for our delight and help, we have to protect, we have to pursue our one flesh union in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the power of God. That's what we need if we're going to have any hope to protect and pursue our marriages. To bring things to a close, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day, Genesis 1.31. Marriage is included in that very good at the end of creation. In fact, God says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord, Proverbs 18.22. Yet in light of the new covenant, we see how marriage is good, continues to be good, but the kingdom of God is far better. Yes, the mar- marriage is good, continues to be good, but the, mi- but the kingdom of God is far better. That's why in the New Testament, singleness is held up right alongside marriage. We're not a church made up of families, but a church made up of disciples who happen to be singles or married. The disciples said to Jesus, said to him, If such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Matthew 19. Jesus himself was a single and taught that some will receive this truth, that it's better not to marry. In other words, it's better to be single. The Apostle Paul, who was also single, wrote about the benefits of singleness. He wrote, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. 1 Corinthians 7. The goodness of singleness alongside the goodness of marriage shows that marriage isn't ultimate. Marriage isn't ultimate. God created marriage, in fact, for a much deeper, more profound, and eternal purpose. We know this because there's no marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus teaches, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven, Matthew twenty-two thirty. In the age to come, in our glorified bodies, in our glorified home, will fully experience the true reality that marriage was supposed to point to, the everlasting union between Christ and his bride gone public. The everlasting union between Christ and his bride gone public. So Paul would write, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. So in light of the New Testament coming of Christ, we see the true meaning of Genesis 2.24, the man leaving his parents and holding fast to his wife. The true meaning of marriage, the true meaning of what we see in Genesis 2 is to showcase the glory of the gospel. The glory of the Son of God coming down in human form to redeem his bride. 
So we see that marriage is ultimately about the gospel, about what God is doing to redeem and save his bride for himself for all eternity. Some of you might be here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ. Maybe I've said some things here that have offended you. Thank you for sticking it out. If what I've said is God's word, God's truth, what will you do with it? There are two places to land, two directions to go, and two ultimate destinations, heaven or hell. Hell is filled, will be filled with people and civilizations who forge their own path in rebellion to God. And the main issue here this morning is your sin, that you've fallen short. The Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. No one has kept God's laws perfectly. So what are you going to do with your sin, with your failure, fa- failure to love God and love neighbor as you ought? What are you going to do with the lies, the lust, the living for yourself? What are you going to do on that final day of judgment when all of us are going to appear before God to give an account for our lives? The good news is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a perfect life that none of us could live. And he died on the cross, the death that you and I deserved. And he loved his bride, his people, that much that he would die for them. So the good news of the gospel is that forgiveness of sins and everlasting life is available for you even now, even today, if you would repent, turn away from your sins, and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. So if you have not yet done that, do that today. Don't delay. You're not guaranteed another day, another moment on planet earth. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Lord, those who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. And Lord, we confess our utter inability to practice one shred of what we've heard this morning. Lord, we need your help. We need the power of the Spirit filling and indwelling, reminding and convicting and strengthening us to do the things we ought to. Lord, we know them, but we lack the power. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd fill us and help us to abide in Christ and to do the things that will bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, because God created marriage for our delight and help, we need to protect and pursue our one flesh union. And if you're married, God calls you to do that, to protect, to pursue your spouse. To paraphrase one Puritan preacher, a husband's love for his wife must be the most dear and intimate and precious and entire that a heart can have toward a creature. None but the love of God is above it. None but the love of ourselves is equal to it, and all the love of others is inferior to it. Husbands, God calls you to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He went to the cross for his bride. And so what is your plan this week for doing that? What is your plan this month, this year, for, for practically and concretely loving your wife as Christ loved the church.
And wives, God has calls you to willingly and joyfully submit to the headship of your husband, laying down your life so that you can be his helper. What is your plan for that this week, this month, this year? I encourage married couples to pray and give careful thought to what your plans will look like. And for all of us, married and single, God has called us to be in community. Be in community, for it's not good to be alone. We are in community in our true family, the church. At Risen Hope, we experience that fellowship as God's family through our community groups. For the good of your soul, don't neglect fellowship with your brothers and sisters. Make time for community group. It needs to be a priority, and it's one of the privileges and responsibilities of membership at Risen Hope. Now, may the God who created the woman for the man who created marriage as a covenantal bond to display the union between the Son of God and His bride, may this God fill you and empower you with His Spirit as you protect and pursue your one flesh union this week. And may He receive all the praise, honor, glory, and power from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.